You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Another uh, episode of Gangland Wire, right here in the Gangland Wire studio. We have uh, a friend of ours from uh, uh, the uh, true crime fiction world, but maybe not particularly the mafia true crime, and it's going to be a little bit different story. All this guy does connect back to the outfit in Chicago for you outfit people in Chicago, and we have Sonova can I edit this. We have Sonova. We have Sonova Cantrell on uh, the Skype, which will go up on YouTube and and then on the podcast. So, welcome, Sonova. It's really great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Okay, Sonova, tell tell the folks a little bit about you, because most of my fans, most of most of the we call them wiretappers, most of the wiretappers out there mainly read nonfiction books about the mafia, whether it be the Five Families in New York or the Kansas City Crime Family or the Outfit in Chicago. Uh, they may not be too familiar with your work, and and reason I got onto you, you know, is because you wrote a nonfiction book about a guy who grew up in and around the Chicago Outfit, and I saw that, and I thought this would be a good fit for for uh, uh, the wiretappers out there. So tell the folks a little bit about your history here. Well, I've been a writer for decades. I started out as a uh, journalist, as a freelance journalist, and I was published in magazines and newspapers. And then I started writing fiction. And then um, while I was the president of a local writer's guild, I um I was approached by a guy that wanted someone to write his biography, and he was an ex-gangster from Chicago, and nobody wanted to touch him. So they sent him up to me, and I uh, I said, okay, I'll meet with you. And he spent four hours at this restaurant telling me these stories, and at the time, I wasn't into true crime at all. I was you know, a complete newbie and um, very sheltered preacher's kid. And I was sitting there trying to keep my poker face on, uh, which I've never played poker, so I don't have a good face. But I was trying to act like this wasn't blowing me away. So I I just listened to all these stories for four hours. And I just kind of leaned back and I said, okay, so what? You got ties to organized crime or what? And trying to sound cool, you know, and not act like this guy was <laughs> killing me here. And he looks at me and I'm, I'm, I'm little, I'm, I'm short, you know, um, and this is like a six foot three big, huge guy. And he, he has these steel blue eyes that just kind of can give you the creeps. And he looks down at me and stares at me for a second. And, and my heart is about to explode as I go, crap, I said something <laughs> wrong. And uh, he looks down at me and he goes, well, sis, if I had been organized, I wouldn't have been caught. And then he laughed. And uh, so that's that's why we named the book Unorganized Crime. I honestly, uh, he, his book is what um, made me rebrand and start with true crime. I've got six true crime books now. Um, and his biography was recently endorsed by a retired FBI agent. Um, he says it's one of the few books written that gives the reader an insight to the criminal mind. He's retired and works with new recruits in Quantico, and he said he was going to tell them that it should be required reading. <laughs> I, I hope so. I was like, woohoo, book sales. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> 
Well, that's 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 most interesting. You know, I, I've been following you for a while. You have a regular blog piece, and you're on Facebook, and, and have a Facebook page. And so I've been following and reading your blog pieces, and I, I like your style of writing, and you find some of the stuff you do most interesting, uh, particularly when I got into it was you were doing pieces on the Dixie Mafia, which I always found kind of fascinating. Now, that's kind of a, uh, in the in the true uh, La Cosa Nostra Mafia world, that's a little bit of a, a misnomer, but it sounds right. good. Uh, there's right. a Dixie Mafia out there. And, mm-hmm. and then on Buford Pusser, I always thought that story was interesting and, and his connections with uh, Dixie Mafia uh, people. So, uh, you know, we'll have to do a show on the Dixie Mafia one of these days. But a lot of the other crimes you uh, you report on and write about are more like your uh, murders and kidnappings and things like that. Is that, that correct? Yes, I write this blog. On Mondays is my Mobster Mondays. So I write about Italians and non-Italians um, on Mondays. And then Fridays is where I, I put out my cold case work, my missing persons uh, cases, unsolved homicides, that sort of thing. I actually started working as a victim's advocate for Missouri Missing Organization. Uh, so I, that tends to make it to where I have a lot of missing person cases to write about. Um, but that blog it goes out to a potential of half a million people each week. Um, and I have, I'm blessed to say that um, we have started generating some leads and um, that I can forward to law enforcement. And I don't know that, um, I hope that they follow up on them, you know, but um, my job is just to raise publicity about these cases and then let them do their jobs. I know one specific case that I did raise, um, raise some tips and it, uh, the guy was arrested within a week after my blog went out. Uh, I got the call, you know, the emotional call from the family member full of gratitude, you know, and, and so that was very fulfilling thing to do with my blog. You know, that is one interesting thing about this platform that we have that can reach out to so many people. And, and there, I get calls and emails from people now. It's mainly older stuff. That's this long, uh, nothing current, but I get a lot of tips and, and put some connections together that, you know, I used to work the mafia 20 years ago and, and it's like, oh, so that's how that works. So you, you know, people are interested in that and, and they're feel a little safer reaching out to you than maybe to law enforcement. Right. And, and, and they actually feel like people feel like they kind of know you because they've read your writing and followed your career a little bit. And, and I get a little bit of the same thing. That would be really gratifying to be able to help solve one of those crimes. Right. Right. Well, I've, I told people and on the other half of my business, I, I have a Sonova Simply Biz where I, I give writing tips for the business of writing. And that's one thing that I was talking about recently. If you can find a passion from and, and align your business, your writing with that passion, uh, you can really go far with it. And and that's where my passion is. I, I get to talk to these mothers and sisters and brothers that they're family is missing for 20 years and the mainstream media has kind of forgotten about them. So there's this huge gap, you know, now on the 20th anniversary, they may get a write up in the newspaper, but from one to 20, it's forgotten. And it's like, once that happens, the leads kind of dry up sometimes. And so that's really where my passion is. And then the the whole Mobster Monday started out from me trying to help a victim's family member. Um, they needed me to, um, I got asked to be part of this, um, kind of, um, 
not an official, of course, but it was this little task force that was getting together trying to raise awareness about the Dixie Mafia because a lady has been fighting for justice for 51 years. Um, now the case has been put together um, and it's on the FBI's desk. I'm sure they had heard of the case before, but this was actually a formal uh, submission and, and they had the interviews with the victim's family. And, and so hopefully this time it will go over. But that's kind of how the whole Mobster Monday thing started was for that case. Oh, interesting. You know, and, and I've worked with the FBI a lot in, in my past. And, and if you can get them to open a case and what you did, what you're, what you're describing to me is you actually got them to open a case. They may have known about it, but they didn't what they call open a case. And so it's, if they interviewed people like that, they opened a case, which is huge. You know, once right. they open a case, why well, uh, then their resources start going into it and something will probably happen. Yeah, I hope so. You ever heard of the baby Lisa case up here in Kansas City, the little baby that disappeared? The parents, uh, the mother uh, woke up at night and said her baby was gone. The husband was off at work. There's a, a true crime podcast up here called Generation Y, and they've asked me to come on their podcast to kind of give the the police view of that uh, missing persons case. Mm-hmm. This was a strange one. It was uh, it was a heck of a story. You might want to take a look at that someday. I'll check it out. Called Baby Lisa. Hey, let's uh, let's talk about your book. Uh, okay. what, what drew my attention? Uh, unorganized crime. That's what uh, that's what these wiretappers want to hear about. They want they like organized crime, but they don't mind hearing about unorganized crime. I got a feeling. Uh, uh, you know, you had uh, the the man's name is Sidney Hurd, and he's from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so yes. that that was who you met with that got you started right. in this business. Right. Uh, right. n- now, mm-hmm. it sounds like he's kind of a character. Uh. Oh, my gosh. I Honestly, I was working on this book. It took me several years because I went all the way to the Supreme Court archives to prove his story because it's so fantastic. And he's of an age I know or I hope that I outlive him. And I'm like, I need proof because someone's going to say she made this up and I want to <laughs> be able to prove it. You know? But I was in the middle of this when the movie um, Catch Me If You Can came out. Oh, yeah. And so I went to read Frank Abingale's biography, and I got bored. I literally made myself finish his book because, to me, his story is boring compared to what (laughs) Sidney did. Sidney's got 50 years of chaos, and he his one thing was he didn't specialize in one thing. He got his hands in everything. Short of murder, that was the that was the main thing that kept him out of being a made man. That and his father was an Italian. He was related to some made men, but um, he was not Italian. And so he, um, but his story is 50 years worth of a criminal career. And Frank Abingale's was 10. And Frank Abingale basically just did the same thing over and over again and just got better and more proficient. Uh, Sydney did everything. Um, the con man games, uh, the flat foot hustling in Chicago, the, you know, all these things. He did everything. And then he ended up migrating down to Amarillo because his little uh, Glen Ellen and all those areas got a little too hot for him. And so he migrated uh, to Amarillo and he became the Amarillo arsonist. 22 years, fires just popped up and he got paid. Um, and they, when it came time for it, I mean, because none of these things last forever, you're going to get caught. 
you're gonna you're gonna face justice eventually. And when he finally did, they used those twenty two fires as a bargaining chip because they couldn't come up with enough evidence to actually um, to get him on those. They say we know you did it, but we can't prove it. Um, but we will drop it if you will turn state's evidence, and that's what he ended up doing. But he was raised in Chicago in Glen Ellen, but he he was raised around Glen Ellen and North Lake. And he was, I don't know if any of your listeners know uh, the Wheaton County Jail. He was the first one to be enlisted in that building, and he was also the first one to escape from that building as a teenager. So the book starts out, within the middle of his escape from county jail. He lives on the run for a while, and he ends up, you know, hitchhiking all over the place. He meets all kinds of crazy characters in the process. But he's actually on the run for over a year before he's caught um, under an alias. He had kind of aligned himself with this teenage group, and come to find out they had stolen the car that they were riding around in. Well, he didn't know this, um, he said if he had known, he wouldn't have stepped foot near the people because he was, he had a rap sheet. These were just petty teenagers doing something stupid. Well, when they got him down into a Florida prince and he was in Rayford, he got down there in a time where the South hated the North and he was a Yankee. They hated him. And he was told, you know, they put him in there and they didn't know who he was because it was under an alias. He had stolen some ID. So it took him a few days back before the Internet. I think it took him quite a while to figure out who he really was because they had to send out. But when they figured out who he was, they immediately put him on lockdown. I mean, they're like, holy cow, we got to keep this guy. Um, and that's the kind of, uh, he had shoot to kill orders on his head when he was 17. I mean, uh, when he escaped from Wheaton, he was always one of those that was very manipulative and he necessarily wouldn't shoot you. He would beat you half to death, but he didn't really want to shoot you. Um, there was something in his Catholic upbringing. He said, I know most, a lot of Italians are Catholic, but there was just something in my Sunday school days that I couldn't kill somebody. He's like, I would never admitted that till I retired. He said, but you know, he would get other people to do things for him. And so he picked a guy that he thought was crazy enough to take out the police if they got into a gun battle. Well, that kid was actually younger than him, but because he chose that guy, he ended up having shoot to kill orders on him at 17 because the guy he was with was terribly dangerous. But uh, anyways, that's just the way the book starts. It goes on for 50 years. Um, he ends up, it culminates in him counterfeiting gold cougarans from Africa. This is a... Yeah, tell, tell us, let's go into that story. That I want to hear that. Yeah. that that's kind of one, one thing that really drew my attention. Now, this guy, you know, he grew up around mob guys mm -hmm. in Chicago, right. but he was kind of a traveling criminal, mm -hmm. too. And he yep. got down to Amarillo, Amarillo, Texas. Mm -hmm. He's an arsonist, so everybody in the underworld knows mm -hmm. Sidney Hurd. Right. That's how you find those arson jobs right. is people know you, and mm -hmm. they ask around, well, who, you know, I need, I got, I'm over my head here. Mm -hmm. I got an insurance policy. Let's uh, right. let's uh, mm -hmm. do something about mm -hmm. this uh, building, and, you know, he gets led to him, right. and he's part of the underworld there in Amarillo. Well, he was but the Amarillo. He, he was the underworld. He was. Yeah. <laughs> was see, the underworld, he I he told that. me, he said he couldn't uh, be a made man. Um, 
but he was protected by made men in in Glen Ellen. And and one of the really before we get to the Cougaran thing in in the eighties, when he was a teenager and he was caught in Rayford Prison, he was actually part of a landmark decision that all law enforcement know about. The Supreme Court decision that came down in October, I think it was 1963, was the was the Gideon versus Wainwright decision, where he everyone got the right to an attorney. Well, what people don't realize is Gideon wasn't the only petitioner uh, to do that. He was the first. Well, Sidney Hurd and five other men are on that original group. They all sent their petitions in one package from the same prison together. Gideon was the one that was kind of the flagship case, you know, and so his name got on all of it. But as far as Sydney and I can tell, Sydney is the last surviving petitioner of that landmark decision because um, he was so young in that prison. Um, so, but anyways, that story is the first time he went to Supreme Court and changed the laws of our land go forward into the 80s when he's doing the Cougaran thing, he gets the Supreme Court to change the laws again. And the reason being is he was very brilliant. Um, he he was very, even to this day, he's, he amazes me. He's got, he can meet someone 20 years ago and he can tell me down to their facial descriptions. I mean, he's got this mind that just amazes me. I have to write everything down, but he's, he's said, well, for so many years, my life depended on that. I had to be able to remember things. And if I couldn't, I knew that I could take one wrong step and I'd be dead. When it came to the Cougaran thing, he had studied the laws. He was bored one night in his in his uh, jewelry shop. He didn't want to go home to his wife, so he was staying over in his jewelry shop. And he's like, uh, he was reading the Wall Street Journal. They reported that a big batch of cougarants had been stolen and they hadn't been found. Well, that sparks an idea in his mind. He starts sending out feelers on the street to see if anyone's interested in buying hot cougarants. Well, there was a lot of interest. And so he's like, well, I don't have the missing cougarants, so I'm going to manufacture them. And so he actually found, he it took some trial and error, but he found a company out in California that would make them with the word copy on them. Okay, um, and he would then take them and under a microscope and he would solder or he would rub off the word copy, however he did it. And then he would dip them in gold. He said an $85 bottle of liquid gold and he made, I don't know, I think he said he, he dipped a hundred of them in there. So, I mean, he could, he could really, he was really making a profit here. And then he'd sell them for $800 a piece. He traded them for drugs. He traded them for all kinds of things. But the ones that really got the, F, um, the FBI's attention and got the feds down on him, he had taken a bank for 270 grand. He used them as collateral for a loan. And when he did that, he crossed over into Fed territory. And so that's where he said he had a rule in his hot Cadillacs and his all of his schemes um, that he would always keep the take less than a hundred grand. He said because he knew it wouldn't draw as much attention. A lot of times it wouldn't be as investigated. Um, and so he always had that rule. Well, at this point, he had gotten greedy and his his cohort 
convinced him to hit this bank for 270 grand. And he's like, that was the big mistake. If I had just kept running like I was, um, it would have lasted a lot longer. But anyways, by the time he got those coins done, he said, you can't match the weight exactly to gold. And so he said what he would do is he would dip it until it was as close as possible. Then he'd put it in a plastic sleeve. And behind that plastic sleeve, he'd put a little bitty slice of cardboard. And so that would make it, when you throw it on the scale, it was approximately the right weight. Of course, someone would want to, a smart person would want to take it out and weigh it, but he wouldn't let him. He's like, no, these are uncirculated. You can't take them out. You know, and then of course, if anybody started to question him, he would back out of the deal. By the time this was all done, he had studied and the law of the land was you can't counterfeit. I can't remember the exact verbiage, but basically you can't counterfeit any uh, any coin of the realm was the way it used to say in the law. So that Mm -hmm. means you can't counterfeit any American currency. Okay, they couldn't get after him until they had that changed. So they were already investigating. They were tailing him. They had he said he had three different types of of law enforcement cars following him everywhere. (laughs) And uh, there is a story about how he dressed up in disguise and and got some people drunk to get through the airport. But uh, there's a lot of sarcasm in this book as well. Um, I put in there, uh, that's the one time a gangster ever willingly got into a trunk. You know, I, I, I put a lot of sarcasm in the book. <laughs> that's a good one. That's <laughs> you know? a good one. That's so, a good line there. That's gold so, there, man. But uh, I've got a better one that I'm designing a T-shirt. I'll tell you about that anyways. But by the end of this, um, he got the law changed. Or the feds got the law changed to where it says any coin of legal, legal tender, meaning anybody's coins, you can't counterfeit. And then they okay. then they took him out. Well, not you know take him out. They didn't kill him, obviously, but they t- right. they took down his business. <laughs> By the time they got him, he had so many people turncoat on him that he's like, well, screw it. I, these are my best friends. They're all turning on me. They're like, we know you did these fires. We will drop this if you will turn state's evidence and so he ended up doing that and then he ended up later through all kinds of chaos getting his life together and now he tries to uh speak to like boys groups and stuff teach them you know this life isn't what it looks like you know at one point and this is one thing that i can't legally say for sure but i will tell you the conspiracy when they confiscated his gold coins They were so good that they used them, the Treasury Department used them as a learning tool for people trying to spot fakes. And we were, and we were told that 120 of them were in a plaque, in a, in a shadow box hanging on the U.S. Treasury Building's wall. Well, I went to try to confirm that. And I got a hold of a lot of people that wouldn't talk to me. I got a hold of the actual caretaker, the person that takes care of the stuff in the building. I got a hold of him. And he told me his exact words were, I cannot legally tell you yes or no. You know, I can't, I can't tell you for sure yes or no. I, I'm not allowed to tell you what's in the treasury building. Um, but the way he worded it, it, it made it sound like yes, they are there. Uh, so if any of your listeners want to travel to the U.S. treasury building, see if there's some cougarans on the wall, snap a screenshot and send it to me. 
because really, I want to know. Yeah, you, hear the, you hear that wiretappers <laughs> out there? If the U.S. Treasury building in uh, Washington D.C. and go in and uh, you see some cougar ants, five cougar ants hanging on the wall in a shadow box, take a picture of it and send it to me, and I'll get it down to Sonoma. Yes, yes. So interesting. You know those those cougar ants are a little bit like uh, like uh, uh, counterfeit pieces of art. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's people out there that can counterfeit, you know, like a, a, a Van Gogh painting, and nobody except an expert can tell the difference. Those cougar ants were probably really floating around out there still. Somebody's got them in a safety deposit oh, yeah. box saying, you know, this is yeah. you know, this is my retirement. I'm going to pass this along to my kid, yeah. not knowing. Mm-hmm. Like the ones he traded for some, some uh, looks like, uh, I think I said in your blog piece that he uh, – Traded them for a couple of kilos of cocaine mm-hmm. down in Mexico. Right. Well, those things are probably still being yeah. used as yeah. as five hundred dollar yeah. cougar ants because uh, nobody would know. Yeah. You know, many areas you wouldn't know the difference right. unless you took them to some kind of an expert yeah. who was really had a critical eye. Right. Uh, otherwise, you know what? What's it? You know, just because it's a cougar ant, if you know we assign a value mm-hmm. of five hundred or eight hundred dollars mm-hmm. or whatever, yep. and that's the value of it, like a painting, mm-hmm. know it. Painting for one person might be ten bucks, another person it might be ten million. Right, so, right. Well, <laughs> an in, interesting yeah. crime. Yeah. Well, he um, he said, and this is I don't want to spark a gold rush to Texas or anything, but he said <laughs> that he had they wanted all of them. Well, they only had record of the hundred and twenty that they confiscated, and I said, okay, so did you give them all? And he's like, what do you think? And I was like, okay, that's a stupid question. Um, but him and a buddy supposedly buried them underneath his buddy's garage. Now, if that buddy thought he could get some money out of them, I'm sure he has taken them back up. But there is a potential of, of another hundred um, <laughs> buried under some random garage in Texas. Now, you can buy the book and maybe try to figure out where it is. But oh, I'm go. not responsible for any vandalism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sonova, well, this has been great. The book is Unorganized Crime by Sonova Cantrell. And she has a blog site. Uh, what's your What's your blog site? What's the URL on your blog site, Sonova? Sonova Inc., as in I-N-K, sonovainc.com. Well, this has been great, and uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and tell, giving our, our wiretappers something to live for. Yes. They can maybe go down and get those cougar ants. Mm-hmm. Although, wait a minute, aren't these counterfeit cougar ants yes. down there? Yes, he said there's well, enough gold on them, though. You can melt it off and probably get you some money. Okay, <laughs> get a little bit of money off of it or sell them to your buddy and say, hey, man, you want to buy a cougar ant here? Half price. <laughs> yeah. <hey. laughs> you know, another thing is is when the, all these cougar ants were stolen, it was it was a big headline. I understand mm-hmm. when he first got on this idea, and all these cougar ants are stolen out there, and him being a criminal, he can take those, and then other criminals, you know, he'd have some support from a newspaper headline and say, you know, hey, I'm fencing these cougar ads, right. you know, and you want right. you know, to buy some of these, I'll sell them to you a little bit cheaper. Now, it's a dangerous game he's playing there when he's dealing with other criminals oh, yeah. or with those drug dealers down in Mexico. Oh, it's a very dangerous game he's playing oh, yeah. to get you killed, man. Well, see, that's the thing. By the time this all winds <laughs> up to a close, he has his connections run up to the Italians in Chicago and then all the way down to the Mexican mafia. He had, they, yeah. uh, they called him Big Sid and he literally, what he had done in Amarillo is he couldn't be a part of the family, so he made his own. I mean, he literally had his Cadillac that showed up to a certain uh, diner on Saturday mornings, and he conducted business in a certain chair. I mean, he was <laughs> he was the boss of Amarillo, and that was the way it ran. If anybody wanted to run anything through him, uh, he even had at one point he had um, 
or there's two different points. He actually got a hit contract given to him. Um, of course, he wouldn't kill nobody, but he wouldn't tell nobody that either because it was all, with him, it was all maintaining the facade. So uh, he has, you know, one chapter in there called Hitman No Kill. He took their money and he went and tripled it at the uh, casino. And he, then he, two weeks later, he brought the money back, said they, the person skipped out. So, this guy is a character. That had to be a fascinating series of interviews. Oh, yes. Where's he? At? Where's he at now? You say he does programs yeah. uh, uh, with kids and yes. Uh, when he when he can, he's he started having a few health problems. So this last year, he hasn't been out much. But he's actually in Springfield, mm-hmm. Missouri. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Maybe I'll have to reach out to him one of these yeah. days and and do an interview yeah. with him. I'll give you his number. All right, Sonova, I appreciate it, and that would be an interesting podcast, and, and we're going to have you back talking about the Dixie Mafia here one of these days that's later in the spring, more than likely. Okay, folks, don't forget, go to www.sonova, S-Y-N-O-V-A, Inc., I-N-K, all one word, dot com, and you can read more of her blog pieces and find out more about some of her cases and these missing persons cases, which everybody's interested in, I've, I've noticed, and and I really appreciate you coming on, Sonova. Thanks a Thank lot. Thank you. You have a good one. Okay, you too. Bye. So wiretappers out there, if you've got a friend or relative that has a problem with drugs or alcohol, make your first call to first call. Call 816-361-5900. Don't forget to buy my book. Don't forget, I have a new movie out, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Sparrow War. You can get that on my website, or you can get it as a $1.99 rental on Amazon. Tell your friends about it. Give me a review on that on Amazon. The more reviews I get, the higher up it goes in the placements so other people can find it. I have my book, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. I have my original movie, Gangland Wire. That's the real story behind the movie Casino and complete with a whole lot of wiretaps and listen to mobsters plot and plan about skimming from Las Vegas casinos and bribing politicians and other Las Vegas-related activity. I have my Kansas City Mob Tour app. If you want to take a mob tour of Kansas City, no matter where you're at, why get the Mob Tour app. It's on the uh, iTunes store. So good night, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.